there is a better and faster way and and we're inventing it now like we're creating it now and that's that's what all this is and it's so exciting to learn about it and have those light bulb moments and go ah you know aha like i get how this system is now being built it's not all smoke and mirrors it's not all speculation there are actual reasons for some of these cryptocurrencies to exist and it's not that the cryptocurrency exists it's that the the protocol or the platform or the layer exists welcome to bulls bears and bourbon the investing show with a buzz Sit back, relax, let's take the edge off, grab a nice glass of bourbon, and enjoy. Cheers from your host, James Vermillion. But first, let me kindly remind you, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. I'm James Vermillion, founder of Vermillion Private Wealth. Get yourself ready because today's conversation covers a lot of ground on some very fast-moving spaces, including crypto, blockchain, NFTs, DeFi, and Web3. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you're going to learn a lot. I'm joined at the bar today by Adam Blumberg, the co-founder of Interaxis, a company dedicated to educating financial professionals about digital assets, cryptocurrency, blockchain, and other alternative assets. They created a course and certification to teach financial advisors how to make crypto and digital assets part of their practice. In May 2021, they helped launch PlannerDAO, the first decentralized community for financial advisors. PlannerDAO has since grown to almost 400 members. I completed the Certified Digital Asset Advisor course, which provided a great foundation of education, and I'm continuing to build on that. I'm taking a measured approach to these new spaces, educating myself before I begin allocating or advising on crypto, but I think the technologies are very, very promising in a whole lot of ways, which we'll talk about during our discussion. Enjoy. Hello, Adam. Welcome to the show, friend. Hello, James. Glad to be here. Honored to be here. Thanks so much. Yeah, I'm excited to talk crypto. Who knows? NFTs, Web3. I don't know where this is going to go. But but I thought since we would be talking at a minimum about crypto and Bitcoin, we'd go with the Japanese whiskey in honor of Satoshi Nakamoto whoever he, she, or they are. Uh, hey, I, I really appreciate that. I'm, I appreciate you not only having whiskey, but having a theme behind the whiskey. That's, <laughs> that's very much appreciated. It, it's one thing to, you know, send me a little bit and have and have a little glass of whiskey, which I completely love. I'm definitely a, a brown water guy. But uh, to actually have it have a theme and say, we're, we're doing this in honor of uh, Satoshi Nakamoto and, uh, and having a Japanese whiskey, I, I really appreciate the effort there. Awesome. Well, I love it. And if someone who's listening doesn't know who Satoshi is, we'll get into all of that. And you're going to learn a lot throughout our conversation. But specifically, what we're drinking is Habiki. It's a Japanese whiskey. This particular one is called Japanese Harmony. So it's a blended whiskey, very much in the scotch kind of style. So this is actually a little bit of a detour for me away from my typical, uh, you know, Kentucky bourbons and rye and and things like that. So this will be a nice treat for me. And uh, hopefully you'll enjoy it as well. Yeah, it arrived at my home and um, I opened it up and let my wife smell a little bit. And she thought it was scotch. 
And she's yeah. got a phenomenal palate, phenomenal nose. And she immediately said, it, it smells like a Macallan. You know, I know this is in, in kind of that same vein as some of the best Scotch whiskeys. It is. It is indeed. So, yeah, that's, um, as I would expect, really smooth. I've actually had this before and it's, it's phenomenally smooth. There's a time when, uh, you know, some of my like regular drinking whiskeys, I would always have a Japanese in there because they're so smooth and easy to drink. This one in particular and some of the others, and I'm not, you know, wildly experienced in Japanese whiskeys, but this one's very delicate. It's very soft and gentle. And on the nose, you know, you get that wood and you get all that oak and grain almost smells kind of like a, like a woodworking shop. But there's also some, some delicate honey, um, honeysuckle type notes in there as well. So yep. very, very a easy sweetness to drink. to it, a little bit of sweet. Yeah, it, it's it's really easy to drink. That, that's why I like keeping the, you know the Japanese whiskeys around because they're so easy. There's no there's not like that that smoky flavor a whole lot. It's just uh, easy to sip. And a lot of people, even if they're relatively new to whiskey or relatively new to to Scotch style whiskeys like this, um, this is a really easy one for them. Yeah, I agree. And while we're kind of getting into the to the whiskey here, I'll give a little background how we met. Crypto is 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 just growing massively, and it has for for several years now. And as a financial advisor, you know it's important for me to be able to speak intelligently about whatever's happening in the world of finance or or the world in general that might impact my clients and their investments. So I have been very closely watching what was happening in the crypto space, but more recently, I've kind of realized this is growing beyond something that needs to be observed. And I really need to get smarter and be prepared and start thinking a little bit more deeply about how this relates to my clients, how this needs to be implemented, what role this might play in portfolios and investment portfolios. So I really wanted to learn and figure out how this is going to impact my practice and how I can help my clients get access to what I think is really a fundamental shift um, in, in a whole new asset class that we're experiencing right now. So through that, I started asking around and talking to some people who were a little more involved in the space than I was, and it kept coming back to you and Interaxis. And so I enrolled in your certified digital asset advisor mm -hmm. program and went right. through that. And it reinforced some of the things I already knew about crypto. And I learned a whole hell of a lot about crypto um, going through that, not just on the crypto side, but also the business side as it applies to how I can kind of implement it into what I'm doing. So I'm still working through those things, but that was a huge help, Adam, to, to get the ball rolling on me thinking bigger about what role these things are going to play as we move forward into the future. Well, I, I completely appreciate that. And of course, I appreciate the fact that you were a, a part of one of our cohorts of one of our courses um, and and appreciate the fact that you're looking at it that way. You're, you're saying, look, this has grown to the point where I need to take notice um, as a financial advisor. I need to take notice for my clients, for my future, for my practice, um, because that's what's going to add to an aid to the adoption uh, of cryptocurrency, of digital uh, assets, decentralized finance. And I don't say that necessarily as someone who has you know, it's this wealth of, of crypto that I need, you know, I need more people to invest so that my number goes up. It's because I feel uh, I and we, those of us that are with me, my, my partner, Ron and, and Steve, who, who helped do the CDAA with us, um, 
we feel like this is just the next logical evolution. This is the next logical step for the financial system. And it's going to be important and incumbent on financial advisors to understand the entire system, not just how to invest in, say, one asset, but but what you went through in learning about, you know, starting with with Bitcoin. And of course, we'll get into this through, you know, what, what we teach and why and all that. But starting with Bitcoin and the basics through custody and wallets and through Ethereum and decentralized finance and on into, you know, regulation and how that affects your practice, how to talk to clients, all those things. Um, it's really important for, for advisors to to be um, learning about it so that they can effectively help their clients and not just look at it and go, well, that's, you know, it, it's a scam or it's not backed by anything or the government's going to regulate it away or something. But to really learn about it is is important. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things, Adam, it, it, it can be very overwhelming when you just start kind of reading about because it came from this kind of cult, um, very small kind of segment of the population. It grew with all of these kind of terms and jargon and stuff that's totally different than what we're used to working within kind of the traditional monetary and financial system. So to, for someone who's studied economics or someone who's gone through, you know, investment training, a lot of those terms just don't show up. It's it's new terms. Some of them are, are kind of meme terms that started out with a joke behind them, but now have real meaning. So it's a totally different mindset. And it, it, it really takes a dedication to saying, look, you know, I recognize this is important. And I'm going to go ahead and, and, and dive in and start to figure this stuff out. And once you do, it starts to make sense. Like anything else, slowly but surely, the terms start to make sense and things start to to, to combine and, and all these ideas and you start to get it. That's where I'm at. I'm trying to get it right now. Right. And, and eventually it, it kind of clicks and makes sense. And that's what happened to me. I mean, it was back in 2017 that I finally invested in some. And when I say invested in me, I mean, I got a Coinbase account and threw a few bucks in and saw right. what happened. And I saw it going up, which had it gone down right away, you and I wouldn't sit and be, wouldn't be having this conversation because I just said, oh, well, I lost my money. I'm out. But it went up which caused me to get more involved and to go learn more about it. And I had to learn not only why is there Bitcoin, but why are there all these cryptocurrencies? And that's what sent me down that rabbit hole and got me really excited about it until you know 2019 when decentralized finance got big. Uh, last year, of course, 2020, where we had COVID happen. And then we had more DeFi. And this year we've had NFTs and DAOs and, and all the other stuff. And, you know, Bitcoin ha had its big run and we've had billionaires buying it. We've had Elon Musk talking about it. Like the, it, it's just become huge now. And it, it's, as you said, it, it's really important to learn. And what I tell financial advisors especially is, look, I, I was a finance major in college too. And I've been, I was in financial services. I, I've been in financial services for 13 years. And I learned more about the economy and about financial services and how the ecosystem works and how economics works through studying crypto than I ever did in college and than I ever did and, and more than I ever did in over a decade in financial services. And it's because we've been served up so much of the financial system on a silver platter. It's just handed to us. You open a bank account and there's not much you have to do. You know how checks work. You know how debit cards work. Um, you, we, even if you're a financial advisor, you go to a custodian, they take care of almost everything for you. You can put in your client's name and social security number and spit out four different accounts for them in, in a matter of no time. And you don't have to know anything about how those accounts work. There's someone in the background figuring it all out for you. 
with, with crypto and DeFi and this new custody, you really have to get in and, and figure out how the traditional financial system works to determine where all these inefficiencies are and go, oh, well, now like we figured out a way to fix some of them. We figured out a way to take some of the inefficiencies out of the market. If we can do that, then yeah, we can give more money to to more people. It's not a and it's not a philanthropy thing. It's why are all these fees being charged and why is there all these intermediaries and why is there all this friction that doesn't need to be there anymore? It had to be there at one point. It doesn't necessarily need to be there anymore. And so we're not here to, to teach people you have to completely give up on banking and the traditional finance system and, and it's all going away. It's you as a financial advisor, especially, should understand how the financial system works. And if you don't, then we're going to help you learn. And then you need to understand how this is just a logical next step. It's a logical next evolution, taking the technological tools that we have and adapting them to how we use money, how we spend money, how we invest money. I think that's a really good point. And one of the things that I've loved about kind of going through this journey of trying to learn more about crypto is it does beg a lot of questions that maybe you didn't even ask of the financial system that we have today. I mean, when you ask someone something like, what is money? Most people don't have a very good answer as far as what money actually is. And when you start getting into crypto, you start thinking about these things. Okay, really, what is money and how does this apply? And, and so it really makes you, it kind of forces you to get back to basics and, and rewire your brain to start thinking about how did we get where we are and then where are we going? And I think that's what you're talking about, kind of that evolutionary next step of, okay, here's a system we ended up with because of these circumstances here's where we are today and here's how new technologies and, and all of these things can now apply to create a system that will benefit people moving forward. And like you said, remove some of that friction and make things easier, quicker, more efficient, more accessible and cheaper. Oh, exactly. And, and keep in mind, you, you mentioned Sh Satoshi Nakamoto earlier on and, and you know that the, the Bitcoin white paper was published or, or was released uh, in a chat room on uh, October 31st, 2008 by Satoshi Nakamoto. And keep in mind that was the, the height of the, of the financial crisis, right? That was right. right when Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers were going under. And it was, it, and it somewhat came about because of some sort of anger and frustration with the financial system. And the idea was, look, the, the banks failed us. They, they absolutely, we needed banks. For so many years, we needed banks because th that was our trust mechanism. And that was the, the mechanism by which you could take the economic system and expand it and scale it, right? Because there's no scale in my making a loan to you, right? I can lend you money for some sort of business. I can't find a thousand of you. Right? right. I don't have time to do that. That's what the bank does. I put my money in the bank. They keep it safe. They go find a whole bunch of you that wants to borrow money and they do that. And that's how we scale the financial system. And the whole financial system is there to get money from where it's less efficient to where it's more efficient uh, overall. Right. Now, how that impacts me is I want to make money on that. Right. Like I, I want my money to be safe, but I want to make some sort of yield on it. In the process, we said, OK, banks, we're going to we're going to give you the job of doing this. And what they did is they completely um, lost our trust. They, they completely took advantage of it. And again, th this is not me saying this. I'm not trying to get theoretical and philosophical here. Th this is what the framers, the, the Satoshi Nakamoto decided with Bitcoin was we're tired of this because the banks basically took our money and sold it back, packaged it up, sold it back and forth to each other, made the entire system crumble, and then went and got a bailout for it. And that was the <laughs> frustration of it. 
And, and the ironic thing was Bitcoin was born out of that, but didn't really take hold for years because we said, okay, we're going to go back to the same financial system again. We're going to, they've learned their lesson. They've totally learned their lesson. We're, we're not going to let that happen again. Meanwhile, in the background, there's Bitcoin and there's decentralized finance and Ethereum and everyone going, oh, okay, we're, here we are. We're, we're, we're taking the lessons that we had and we're going, look, some of that stuff that banks do, we don't need banks to do. We, we have code that can do it. You, we can do it to each other. We, we, just have to, we, we just have to build the network and the code that we can trust. And then we can take out some of what banks do and some of what those financial intermediaries do and make the system more efficient and better and safer and more transparent for everybody. And that's kind of where we're getting to. It's so early still. It is so early. But when you start learning about it and you go, okay, now I understand the, the incentive mechanisms here. How can we build an incentive mechanism to get people to lend each other money and do so in a safe way? We can actually do that with code. Like there's a lot of computer code that we can use to do that. There's programs we can use to do that. And on one hand, you see the decentralized finance system being built. On the other hand, you see these, you know, kind of neo banks, right, that, that are for business or, or for helping, you know, for saving money for your kids and teaching them about money and everything that is just uh, an application on your phone that's built on top of some someone who had a banking charter. Right. It's always right. some sort of savings or, or not savings. It's always some sort of credit union or some sort of bank that you've never heard of in the background. So one of the banking charter and then someone building an application on top of it because those people were saying there's a better way to do this. There's a better way to do banking. There's a better way to save money and use money and spend it and move it around and everything. And they're building these neo banks. And at the same time, there's decentralized finance and crypto going. We can build a better system, too. We don't need that uh, as much of that banking thing. So I know I jumped in and got very theoretical on you right off the bat without even talking about what we're doing, but, <laughs> but that's the whole point of, of learning it to me is that's why it's so exciting to learn it because it made me go, oh my gosh, look, there are all these incentive mechanisms built into the current financial system. And if we can ab abstract some of those out of and, and give it back to people and let people make some of their own decisions and let people take on a little bit more risk in one place, but get more reward in another place, why wouldn't we do that? And that's kind of where we are. And and look, again, it's new. It's not always safe. It's not always good for financial advisors to recommend a lot of the stuff. But to me, it's important that financial advisors start learning about it because it's it's going to eventually usher in a new way that we save, invest, spend, basically a new way that we interact with our financial selves. I think that's a great, I mean, really just a summary of of kind of where things are heading, not just in crypto, I think, but really more broadly. I mean, I don't see this being any different than how really good, prominent authors who have these really passionate fan bases no longer going to work for some giant, you know, New York Times or something, and instead starting a sub stack where people pay them directly. Technology is enabling people to break away in, in a sense, from some of the traditional institutions that we've relied on for so long. And it's not that it's good or it's not that it's bad. It's just the next step in the evolution of, of what technology enables. So that gets me really excited. And I think crypto is a big, big part of that blockchain, a huge part of that. So many things that can be kind of linked together um, through some of these technologies. But real quickly, I'd like to uh, look at a couple of commonly held beliefs, if you will, that I've heard come up, you've heard them come up over time, just th through conversations with friends, family, clients, whoever about crypto. And you can say that's bogus, that's a myth. You can say, yes, that's true. Or you can say truth lies somewhere in the middle. 
Uh, and feel Perfect free to, to go. talk about this right after Thanksgiving, right? After, you know, <laughs> I heard about it a lot from family. It, it, yeah, I'm sure there were families all over the, the country talking about NFTs and debating, um, is it just a stupid meme art platform or is there some some utility behind it and what the future is? But hey, that stuff's fun, right? Exactly. So yeah, go ahead. Hit me with it. Okay. So the first one, this is an old school one. It's, it's, uh, you, you, you've definitely answered this one before, but crypto is mostly used for illicit and illegal activities. I still okay. hear this, it, by the way. I, I still hear it quite a bit. It's, it's commonly used by people who are completely against it. More likely it's people who uh, have a vested interest in it not working. Um, so crypto was at one point used quite a bit for illicit activities. As a matter of fact, Silk Road, uh, the, the famous Silk Road that you know was the, the dark web website where it started out uh, here in Texas where I am with a guy selling mushroom, you know, illegal mushrooms and mushroom kits. And then it blossomed into other drugs and it blossomed into this, this complete marketplace all over the world of drugs, guns, uh, humans, um, right. uh, apparently assassinations, like that kind of thing could be sold. And they use Bitcoin as the as the monetary system of it. And the reason was not because it wasn't traceable, but because the government didn't know how the government didn't know very much about it. And you didn't, you could have Bitcoin without tying it to a bank account. So this was a way, this was why they did it because you couldn't very well go illegally buy mushrooms, but use your checking account to do it or use a debit card or a credit card. So nor could you carry around bags of cash or send bags of cash or envelopes of cash. So they utilize Bitcoin. Now I, I will say this, they utilized it because they needed it, which actually validates it more than anything. It validates the, the need for cryptocurrency more than anything, because look, if we, if we look back over the history of the internet, the internet got to be so big so quickly because of gambling and porn. Like that's yeah. what drove video and that's what drove, that's what drove security on the internet really quickly. So if you want to see if something's going to make it, are there vices that are adopting it first? And if so, then it's probably going to make it. <laughs> Because they know what they need. Like th those people know what they need. Now, what happened was with Silk Road, especially, is the government got wise to it and figured out this is an incredibly traceable asset. This is Bitcoin is the most traceable asset ever. You can follow it from step to step to step. If I sent you Bitcoin right now, not only would we be able to trace the fact that it went from me to you, but you'd be able to look at that Bitcoin and how I got it and where it came from and where it came from before that and where it came from before that. So it is actually the most traceable asset ever. If any criminals are utilizing Bitcoin, whether it's, whether it's ransom, hacking, drugs, whatever, they are not very good criminals because they're going to get caught really quickly. I agree. I had a conversation about this not too long ago, and someone said X amount of illegal activity is being basically paid for or paid by cryptocurrencies. And it was a very small percentage, and I don't even, I never fact checked right. it. I don't even know if it was true or not. But I said, Oh, what is the rest paid in? Yeah. And they said, right. Well, I guess cash. And I said, Well, does that make cash bad? I mean, right, exactly. Uh, yeah. Go ahead, There's Adam. so many more drug deals that happen in bags of cash or wads of cash than there are in cryptocurrency. Like you don't see a lot of, of drug deals going down on the street corner and people exchanging Bitcoin on their on their hard wallets or anything like it, it's cash for the most part. But that I mean, having that as an argument against cryptocurrency doesn't make sense because it, it's just not the case anymore. It's actually there's no data to back that up anymore that it's right. used 
primarily for criminal activity. It's used primarily for holding on to and accumulating wealth right now. Yep, totally agree. So we'll move on. I think we we uh, adequately covered that one. The second one, cryptocurrencies run major risks of being hacked. And I chose that wording carefully. So I'll let you dissect that a little yeah. bit. Okay, perfect. Uh, I feel like you've heard me talk about this. The, the Bitcoin network itself, itself has never been hacked. So that's important to note. The Bitcoin network itself has never been hacked. And that's not because people aren't trying, uh, because of course they're trying, but it, it hasn't been done. Some of the beauty of the Bitcoin network is the time and money and expense it would take to try to hack the actual network. With that, you would actually be better off just using that power to mine Bitcoin. You would make more money mining Bitcoin without computing power than you would trying to hack the Bitcoin network. Number two is the hacks or the um, exploits or something usually happen on different levels. So we, being the individuals that own the Bitcoin or have the accounts or have the wallets or whatever, we are the weakest link in the chain, uh, no pun intended. We are the ones that can get hacked fished, phishing emails, people get our account information, people get, you know, ask for our, our private key, which is what you use to access your crypto wallet. People ask for it via email and we give it to them. It's the same way people get your username and password for your bank account or for your credit card or whatever. It's, it's, they, they know how to play the numbers game and they know if they send enough emails out that look official and ask you for your private key or ask you for your username and password because they're from Coinbase or, or whomever, that enough people are going to do it, that it makes it worth it, right? On top of that, they're trying to hack the exchanges and such. And there have been some high profile hacks or exploits of big exchanges. Um, and when that happens, those big exchanges generally have some insurance behind them and they, they make people whole. But the networks themselves very rarely, if ever, get hacked. It's the people more often than not that get hacked the same way they get hacked for their bank information, the same way they get hacked for their credit card information, the same way my computer might get hacked and someone might get to look at my pictures or something. It's not that much different. And I want to make a point too, not all cryptocurrencies and blockchains are created equally. I think we're getting to the point where these phrases are thrown around so much and this has just become so big. People say crypto or blockchains that can mean so many different things now. That's like saying stocks. I mean, okay, right. what kind of stocks? What kind of companies are we talking about? Are we talking about penny stocks traded on the pink sheets? Are we talking about, you know, one and a half trillion dollar market cap behemoth tech companies? I mean, right. two totally and different that's things. Really, that's such a good thing to point out, James, because there is no the blockchain. We, you hear right. people say this is on the blockchain. There is no the blockchain. Bitcoin is a blockchain. Ethereum is a blockchain. Solana is a blockchain. Algorand's a blockchain. Like there's so many different blockchains out there. It's like there's SQL databases and there's and there's Oracle databases. Like they're just different. Which goes to several different points. Can they be hacked? Some of them can be hacked or exploited more easily than others. But that exploit doesn't do very much, or that hack doesn't do very much for you. So you have to weigh it. And this is where it gets into financial advisors learning about this. What are the risks? What are the risks of my clients being in this particular cryptocurrency that's denoted on one blockchain versus one that's denoted on another blockchain? And it sounds like, you know, if you're a financial advisor, you go, you know what, I, I give up. This, is, this sounds like way too much for me to learn. But once you learn the basics, it's really it's a lot easier to move along and progress with everything else. So the interesting part, another interesting part from that discussion is there are other blockchains or other cryptocurrencies. They have different valuation metrics. They have different reasons why they might have value. Some of them accrue cash. 
Uh, some of them have cash flow. Some of them are governance. Some of them, you know, have some sort of participation in the rewards or the fees or something. There are different ways that they accrue or have some sort of value or, or can be valued in different metrics. And so the assertion, which I'm sure some people have that may, maybe you're going to get to at some point here, but the assertion of, well, how can they be this many cryptocurrencies? Surely there only has to be one or two that win. The rest of them are going to lose. To me, incorrect. Like some of them have viable reasons for being. Some of them have viable reasoning and, and viable valuations and viable metrics that they're going to continue to sustain. No differently than way back in the early days of the internet, it's not like there was just one company that, that was into you know online stores, online retail. I mean, Amazon has obviously been far and away the biggest winner, right? right. But there were several other companies. There were several search engines. There were several, there were several companies that have profited from the internet and built different uh, platforms and products and services around the internet, and then later around smartphone apps. There's not just one. The same way there's not just going to be one cryptocurrency, there's not going to be one protocol that wins. They're all going to have their place because if they are trying to augment or replace the current financial system, there's lots of things and there's lots of assets, there's lots of investments, there's lots of companies and protocols in the current financial system that need replacing. And that's what some of these are doing. It just so happens that they have what's called a cryptocurrency built around them instead of having a stock symbol built around them. Yeah. And I'll tell you my approach, Adam, and I'm sure it's different for every single person. You know, I'm not going to dive into every single new cryptocurrency that comes out. It's impossible. They're popping up all over the place. And like you said, there there are different utilities, different purposes for their existence. I'm more the type to kind of find my way, find what I think makes the most sense and really try to learn about those and make sure I understand them as in-depthly as I can. And keep in mind, you know, this is one, as you know, this is one piece of a much greater uh, investment arena that's massive in itself. Um, so it's not like I can spend all day, you know, learning about every everything that's happening in the space. It's impossible for someone who's doing it full time and that's all they focus on. It's definitely impossible for me, who who's trying to also keep track of so many other things that are happening, but that's been my approach. You know, for me, sticking with the basics, Bitcoin, Ethereum, those are the two that I've gone the deepest in. Those are the two that are that are obviously the biggest as far as as you know amount of money and number of users that are that are using them. Um, and and as I learn more, sure, if something catches my eye and I think there's a really compelling reason to look more in depth, then I certainly will. But but I'm not trying to um, find the n- newest and greatest uh, upcoming cryptocurrency no. that, that's hitting the market. No. And, and look, that's that's what we try to preach in the course. And, and you've heard me talk about this, right? It is one, as a financial advisor, you don't need to go sell crypto to your clients. There are some that want it. There are some that already have it that you probably don't know about. There are prospects out there that have it and they're just waiting for a financial advisor that understands it. And so your job is not to go, I'm going to find this new one and try to sell it to people. Your job is to understand enough. And if you go, look, I'm com- if, if I have a client that comes to me and says, look, I'm kind of interested in putting a little bit of money in crypto, then you're prepared now to have that conversation. Why would I do that? What should I expect? How am I going to do it? Um, wh- what do I do with the volatility? How do I create a plan around it? At what, par- what percentage of my, of my net worth is going to go in there? What percentage of my portfolio is going to go in there? How are we going to manage it? All of those questions that you're now prepared to answer. And you are, you are going, look, I've, I've done my research on Bitcoin and ETH. That's what I'm comfortable with. And that's good. But you're also prepared. And I'm guessing I'm not telling you what you are, but you're prepared that if a company, if, if a client comes to you, our prospect comes to you and goes, look, I've I made a whole bunch of money on Solana, right? I got, you know, 
$100,000 worth of Solana. I started with 1,000 and here I have 100,000. What should I do? You, you know enough to go, look, I, I, I don't know a whole bunch about Solana, but it won't take me six weeks to go learn about it. It right. might take me a few hours because I know the basics up to here and I just have to learn this much more. And then we can talk about what you do with that if we you know, transition you out of some of it or, or how we allocate or, or whatever. But now you know enough to have those conversations, which is the really important part. We don't think that most financial advisors are going to be managing a portfolio of crypto assets and choosing what their clients are going to get into. It's more about questions like custody. Where are we going to custody this? Are you going to custody on your own wallet or an exchange? How do you get into it? How much do we allocate? Uh, and then how do you have those conversations? And if your clients want to be in more than Bitcoin and ETH, well, they're, they're you know, SMA managers. There are managers that can do that for you if you want, if they really want to. And you know enough to go, I can vet those people without having to understand every cryptocurrency they're invested in. Yeah, totally. That makes that makes perfect sense to me. And, and as I sit here and, and sip the whiskey a little bit more, I keep thinking about Satoshi. And I don't remember where I heard you talking about it. Um, I don't remember if it was another podcast or, or in class or what it was. But the concept or the idea of the fact that Satoshi is anonymous is a hangup for, for certain people. And they say like, hey, this is very strange that some anonymous person, no one in the world knows who, who they are except for them, created this system that has now uh, become this massive, massive thing. And I think it's unnerving to some people. I think it's one hell of a feature, um, to be honest. And I've heard you talk about this a little bit. Can you just pontificate on that a little bit? What do you, What does that mean to Bitcoin in particular, the fact that um, Satoshi is anonymous. You know what? I think is a great feature. I, I think some people get hung up on it because people generally like a throat to choke, right? They like someone to blame when something goes wrong. Um, or, or you want some sort of hero when things go right. Mm-hmm. Um, but look, any hero that's going to take uh, credit for that is probably someone we don't want at this point. We probably, we like the fact now it's, you got this mythology built up around it that Satoshi is, is, is this mythological person. Uh, in my opinion, I think it's probably three or four people that came together and wrote the white paper. I don't think it's one person that did it. And that's why they're remaining anonymous. I think it's amazing that they remained anonymous to this point. Um, but I, I think it adds to the mythology of it and it adds to the decentralization of it. The idea is for it to be so decentralized that there is no one person that can have any sort of say or control or sway or anything. Uh, now, of course, we've seen that people have some control when, when Elon Musk tweets about Bitcoin and it moves, right? There are some people that can say things and it moves, but those people don't have full control over it. If we were to, at this point, find out exactly who Satoshi was, uh, I think it would probably be a negative for Bitcoin because now we have one person to look to. And whenever they, whenever that person says something, the entire market would move and it would be a negative. That person would, would have to be even more anonymous and, and actually go into hiding almost because any word they said would would move this multi-trillion dollar market now. And that would actually be a negative. So, look, I, I think the fact that it's anonymous adds to the mythology and allure and adds to what a lot of us love about it. And, you know, full well. Look, there, there are some people that look at Bitcoin and crypto as almost like a cult, um, and it does have some cultish aspects to it, quite honestly, that, that I don't like a whole lot, but it, it just quite simply does. And that's a big part of it. You have this mythological creature. I mean, how, how much better can a cult be than to have something that you can't put your finger on be the leader of it? That's a good point. I, I think you nailed it, though, with the decentralized part. 
the fact that there's no figurehead, because that's really what how governments run, right? You've got all these various parts of a government, but there's almost always some president, emperor, king, like one person who is kind of like the person who stands on the podium and is the end all be all and who can change policy with a snap of a finger um, to some extent. And that doesn't exist with Bitcoin. And I think if that person did exist, where if they at, were asked their opinion uh, and, and their opinion, just stating it, even if that was totally innocent, could impact the way things are going, I think that would be a major, major negative. And and frankly, I think Bitcoin would lose a lot of its luster because personally, I think that's one of the reasons I love Bitcoin so much is the, the decentralized part of it. I think people are really clamoring right now for a system where no one person is in charge. It's truly a group effort. It's truly a system that relies on everyone's input in becoming, you know, in getting consensus. So I agree. I think it would be a major, major, uh, I don't, I don't want to say issue. It wouldn't kill it or anything like that. I don't think, no, but it, 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 it would be good. Be, it would be one more thing to contend with right now. Now look on, on Ethereum, we kind of know who the founders were and they, they stay out there. Vitalik being the the main one who everyone knows yeah. about and, and thinks of as the founder of Ethereum. Um, fortunately for, uh, for all of us, Vitalik is not hell bent on world domination or anything like that. He's, he's generally trying to continue to make the network go and try to make Ethereum better and to try to make the world better. And and that's, you know, probably a good thing that he seems to not have very much of an ego at all. Um, if if he were, you know, kind of egotistical and, and had to be out there, it'd probably be a bad thing for Ethereum. Um, so we're kind of fortunate in that. And, and just about every other cryptocurrency has some sort of leader out there that everyone knows who the founder was. Bitcoin is the first one that just doesn't have that. And look, the, part of the reason was Bitcoin didn't have to go raise money. They didn't have to go raise VC money or anything. They just right. kind of threw it out there and, and to see what happened and it's gotten to where it's gotten. They didn't go raise money. It started literally, uh, I mean, as grassroots as you can get. It was like, hey, five people plug in your computers and let's see if we can make this thing go. And they did. It, it, everyone else has had to go raise money. And the final statement that we can kind of uh, decide if it's myth or, or, or not or in between is Bitcoin is bad for the environment. Uh, yeah, we, we hear that a lot. And, and a lot of it is like, of course, there's an environmental lobby and, and all that. And, and it uses a tremendous amount of energy to mine Bitcoin. And that, you know, if you end the conversation with here's how much energy it takes to mine Bitcoin, then you can see where, oh, my gosh, this is bad for the environment, because most of that energy is probably some sort of burning of fossil fuels that goes in the environment. Uh, when you really get into the numbers, it's really not very bad for the the environment overall. One, Bitcoin, look, in the past, there has been a quite a deal of Bitcoin mining done uh, from coal plants and such because a lot of the mining was done in China and they're going to go with whatever is the, the least expensive, whatever they have available. They have a lot of uh, coal energy there. But Bitcoin miners over the years have gone and tried to find the least expensive power they could. And oftentimes the least expensive power is renewable energy. So you have Bitcoin mining going on with geothermal power, which is free and doesn't affect the environment at all. You have it done with hydropower, which is free and doesn't affect the environment at all. Um, now, you know, here in Texas where I am, everyone's going with natural gas because we were flaring it into the atmosphere anyway. People right. would, and, and, you know, most people don't understand how that works. But when you drill an oil well, you come up with oil and you come up with, with natural gas as well. And the natural gas for years, you know, the, the value was so low that it wasn't worth it to try to 
build a pipeline to take it anywhere. So they literally just lit it on fire and set it off in the air because it wasn't worth it to deal with it because they just wanted the oil coming out of the ground. And so Bitcoin miners started saying, whoa, 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 we'll take that natural gas. You're going to burn it anyway. Why don't we burn it and create some money out of it? Why don't we burn it and create some value out of it? And so it, it, it's a net zero overall because they're not going and finding new natural gas wells to, or, or new oil wells specifically for Bitcoin mining. It's using energy that was going to be utilized anyway. It's just putting it towards a, a different purpose. So yes, there's a tremendous amount of energy being used to mine Bitcoin, but that was energy that was probably going to be used elsewhere. Otherwise, you would see the price of energy going through the roof. Because if we all of a sudden had to come up with new energy sources to mine Bitcoin, you would see the price of electricity going up. And you have not seen that. You've seen the price of electricity go down, actually. I, I don't agree with that. There might be data to, to disprove me. Uh, and, and of course, there are a lot of people that say it is bad for the environment to mine Bitcoin. But overall, it, it's, you know, if you want to get, comp you know, do some comparison shopping, how much does the financial system use? How much energy does the financial system use the way it is? All those buildings and all those people and all those checks going back and forth and, and everything that, that happens to make the financial system work, all their servers. Bitcoin is is a minuscule percentage of what the financial system has to use to move. Anytime I'm asked a question where I think someone has a really strong agenda behind it, and I think usually when I've been asked about Bitcoin's energy consumption, and not to sound like a Bitcoin maxi, I mean, I, I recognize I'm not, I'm not like a huge Bitcoin person. I think it's the future in, in, in certain ways. I think it's important, and I think it is disrupting the financial system. I don't think it's the be-all, end-all. You know, I'm not directing people put massive amounts of money into Bitcoin or anything like that. But I do think it's important to look at, but I think it's important to look at in a fair way. And so my question is always compared to what? I mean, that's an economist's favorite question, right? Compared to what? And anytime someone says, James, is Bitcoin bad for the environment? I say, compared to what? And, and the other thing, and I think you touched on it a little bit, Adam, it's really driving innovation. People now have a financial incentive to be as efficient as possible. And anytime you put a financial incentive behind something, people are going to get really creative and find new ways to, to do things. And that really could yeah. speed up some of the technologies, the green energy technologies, alternative energy. Mm -hmm. um, it could speed those things up, which, which could be a huge net benefit to, oh, yeah. to everybody. Oh, of course. I mean, look, the, the, it, it just so happens that most of the dirtiest forms of energy are also the most expensive, right? Coal is ridiculously expensive to create energy with. Natural gas is much less expensive. Solar is a big upfront capital cost, but then literally all you need is the sun to, to be there. And, it's, and is upfront cost is declining. Right. Massively. The upfront cost is declining. Don't think for one second that Elon Musk came here to Texas and is not probably building a monster solar farm using his solar panels to mine Bitcoin. I'm fairly certain that is happening right now. And that's, you know, a, a tremendously um, uh, efficient way to, to mine Bitcoin, especially when he has the most efficient uh, solar panels in the world. So, of course, we're, we're going to go that way. Of course, we're going to find efficient ways to mine Bitcoin because it's literally taking energy and converting it directly into value. And again, I, I'm not I'm, I'm not by any means a Bitcoin maximalist and don't want to necessarily argue with people. But if you're going to have an argument against it, those are not very good ones. I agree. And, and unfortunately, those are the most common ones that I hear. So I wanted to get those out of the way for people who have heard them before, but maybe haven't heard the counter argument or for people who have heard them and just 
haven't looked into it themselves, but wanted to. So I think we've kind of, you know, hopefully provided a little bit of perspective for what it's worth on a couple of those topics. So I want to kind of keep going. So, okay, we've kind of covered Bitcoin and how it came to be and a little bit about what role it might play. I want to go a little further now towards that decentralized finance kind of end goal and talk about smart contracts. The way I kind of describe a smart contract is something on the blockchain, a code, a computer program running code that basically executes an if this, then that scenario. Is that generally right, number one? And number two, what are some utilities, some some ways that smart contracts might impact the average person um, eventually, if not soon? Okay, so that is a, a really good way to think about smart contracts. So I'll give you some of the easiest to think about. And these aren't called smart contracts, but they're kind of autonomously running programs. So think about this, this um, where, where we're recording this, you probably pay a monthly subscription to this service, right? Yep. Which means, look, tomorrow's December 1st. As soon as that calendar flips, there's some software program that says it's December 1st. We're going to charge James credit card, which we have on file, $20 because it's December 1st. They didn't ask you to do it. No one sent you an email and said, James, please go click this link. It was done autonomously. The calendar flipped and therefore you got your credit card got charged $20. That is essentially a smart contract. It's an if then. And it keeps asking, did the, did the calendar change? Did the calendar change? Did the calendar change? And finally, when the answer is yes, charge James credit card, which is on file, go find it in the database, charge it $20 because it's December 1st. That's essentially what a smart contract is. Now, it just so happens that when we run those on a blockchain, which is decentralized, there's not a centralized server. There's not a server sitting on Amazon uh, Web Services or Google Cloud or anything. It's just all these computers that are connected running, running this code. When it happens there, it's the same thing. It's something that runs autonomously. It's always looking for an if then. It's always looking for the if to happen. And when the if happen, it triggers the then. That's essentially what a smart contract is. When you start, and, and you know this probably well, most of programming and coding is just a bunch of if then. If this happens, then do this. And after that, do this. And if that this happens, do that. And you just keep building and building and building. And once you do that, you can, you can build some complex tools. And what DeFi, what Ethereum started with was, we're going to give you the very basics for how to write that code. And then go do with it what you want. We, we don't know what you're going to do with it, but just but go figure it out. We're going to make it so open source that you can go figure out what to do with it. And it just so happens that the first things people did were, you know, some art and NFTs, by the way. Uh, th- those were early, there were early on, like 2016, 2017 NFTs. But then a lot of it, w- you know, became what we know now as decentralized finance. You know, the reason I asked that, I feel like there's this overcomplication of just some of these definitions. You know, a smart contract, if someone asks me what it is, I mean, that's literally what I tell them. It's an if the, if this, then that statement. And, and one of the ways I really wrapped my head around this, you know, a while back was when I was using some no-code solutions. I don't know a coding language. I didn't grow up mm-hmm. as a computer scientist or an engineer. But now there are tools out there that will allow me to create solutions without having that coding experience. The coding is kind of done on the back end. But what I realized... All I'm doing is saying, if a client clicks this button, then hide these next questions because they don't apply to them. If the client puts these answers, then the score of this risk tolerance spreadsheet should be tallied and this should be the outcome. 
and this should put them in this particular bracket. So what I realized is you're building a logic and all smart contracts are is some logic built into the blockchain. And, and that is the kind of the framework for which it can be executed on. And, and it really allows for, like you said, the automation of certain things. And it allows from a system of, of maybe early Bitcoin where Adam, what's what, you know, I'm going to send you some Bitcoin, you know, what's your ID? We send Bitcoin back. That was kind of the beginning, but okay, that you can't do a whole lot with that. You can't scale that like you talked about earlier. So now we need to make this a little bit more um, flexible and, and be able to fit some of the things we do every day. And that's where I right. think the utility is. So, exactly. So you asked me about a, a few use cases. So one of the ones that I went to early on when, when I started learning about blockchain and smart contracts and everything, and, and I, don't, I have no idea how to code any of them. Um, I just talk theoretically more, more than anything else. But one of the earliest things, uh, ideas I could tell people was if you look at like the, the transportation or mainly the shipping industry, right? The, the, um, supply chain, which of course we're having all sorts of issues with right now. Yes, we but are. Imagine, imagine you and I have some sort of contract that says, I'm going to make you, uh, you're buying a million dollars worth of widgets from me and I'm in China and you're in Los Angeles and I'm going to put the widgets on a boat. Now in the traditional world, I, we have a, a, an agreement that we signed and more likely than not, the, the most we got into the technology that exists in the internet was I created a PDF of the invoice and I emailed it to you, which seems a little bit ridiculous. Like instead of putting it in the mail and mailing it to you, I emailed it to you. That's as much as we use this internet technology <laughs> right. that's been around for 30 years is I emailed you a PDF of the invoice, which got stuck in some sort of accounts payable department for a while. But then I send you the widgets. They get on a truck or, or they get on a boat. They make it to L.A. They, you know, someone inspects them. You go sell them. And I keep calling you and emailing you and going, where's my money? Where's my money? Where's my money? You eventually maybe wire it or send a check. And that's what happens in the traditional world. In the DeFi smart contract world, we wrap our agreement in what's called a smart contract. And what it says is your money is essentially sitting in, in this es almost like an escrow account. Uh, you know, it could be sitting in your wallet, it could be sitting in an escrow account, whatever it might be. When the widgets leave here, leave China, they when, when they get to a certain point, whether it's the middle of the Pacific Ocean or whether it's to the dock in Los Angeles, we can use GPS to determine they got there. You can be an inspection. Someone says, yes, they're all here. And instantaneously, that money, that cryptocurrency moves from your wallet to my wallet. No, there were no PDFs. There was no accounts payable, nothing like that. It could happen instantaneously. And the GPS, the location, that's what we call an Oracle. That's really important. That's what informs the smart contract. This is the if of the if then statement. If the widgets reach this point, then pay Adam his money. Oracles are extremely important now because we are allowing the code to take over. We're not going back and forth. You and I or my accounts receivable department, your accounts payable department are not going back and forth trying to get payment for something. It is literally the smart contract saying when this happens, James money goes to Adam and you can save a whole, a whole bunch of money and a whole bunch of time and a whole bunch of resources with that sort of scenario. Now, when you extrapolate that, go, OK, that's really valuable because I know that as soon as I get these, I'm going to get paid. Now, what, what can I do with that? Well, maybe then I can go get a loan against that now. Right. Right. I can be like, look, as soon as he's hit, look, I've put them on the boat. I can prove to you they're on the boat. When they get to LA in five days, James is going to pay me. And there's no way he can not pay me because it's already wrapped in a smart contract. So I'm going to go get $990,000 against that million. 
and, and I can borrow that money and go pay my people if I want to. That's pretty powerful. You can extrapolate smart contracts and go, look, why can't that be a lending deal? Why can't I let you borrow money and know full well that you put some sort of collateral up there as, as, and using code to do it? It says, I don't have to hound you for the payment. You're going to make it every month regardless. It's just going to happen. Right. Okay. And there's no way you can get out of it. That is really powerful. And that is where we start saying, okay, the banks in the past have been the intermediaries that have done that. They've created a tremendous amount of friction. They've charged a lot of fees. They've done nefarious things with our money that caused the entire financial system to crash in 2008 and 2009. Why, why would we keep doing it that way? We've already proven that there are better ways and we have technology to, to help with that. Why wouldn't we do that? And that's essentially what smart contracts do is they give us the ability to write the code to take on a lot of those functions. Not all of them, but some of those functions that banks and other investment companies and other financial intermediaries do now that we don't need people and companies to do. We can have code that just does those things the same way this company charges your credit card every month, the same way that I can write that one newsletter and send it out to a million people because they've subscribed and it will charge and this software will charge their credit cards every month. That's what the internet gave us. That's what the technology gave us. We've just taken it a step further now and said, okay, now there's other functions we can extrapolate out. I don't have to go beg you for the money for the widgets. We can just have it in a smart contract and it can be done. And this, Adam, is why I get so excited about this stuff. It, and it goes back to what you mentioned at the very beginning. We're basically building the financial system throughout this conversation. So we started with a currency Okay, yeah, but that's no good just us sending money back and forth. So now we're building in smart contracts. Now we're, we're, we're talking about lending. So we've gone from just two people involved to now you're building an actual system. And that's where the decentralized finance piece comes in. Yes. It's gone beyond just having tokens you and I are trading back and forth to now you've got real utility and, 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 you know, you mentioned you learn more about the financial system when learning about crypto. I think this is part of a part of the reason why is because you're seeing a system go from you're a farmer and I'm a farmer. We farm two different things that are harvestable at different times. So we, we created this system of trading some twig back and forth to, okay, now it's growing and it's growing. And now we've got these, this, this entire system built on that foundation. And that's what gets me really excited, kind of thinking further into the future and, and all of the utility that, that these things have. And a lot of people can't see it. And I can understand that. And you really have to get into it and, and start thinking a little bit bigger and, and, and really kind of get creative. But there's a lot that can happen. And, and I suspect will happen. It is happening. Yeah. And, and look, part of it is going past some of those objections that we talked about earlier, some of the objections of ar around things like privacy. Right. Be, be, but for all those times where you've said, man, there's got to be a better way to do this. There's got to be a better way for me to get my medical records to another doctor or or, you know, I need to buy life insurance. There's got to be a better and faster way to do this. There is a better and faster way. And, and we're inventing it now, like we're creating it now. And that's that's what all this is. And it's so exciting 
to learn about it and have those light bulb moments and go, ah, you know, aha, like I get how this system is now being built. It's not all smoke and mirrors. It's not all speculation. There are actual reasons for some of these cryptocurrencies to exist. And it's not that the cryptocurrency exists. It's that the, the protocol or the platform or the layer exists. And then we just need a cryptocurrency to help make it efficient. We need a, j just like you need a currency. If you were to start a new country right now, you would need some sort of currency for your country, for your people. When you start a new cryptocurrency net, when you start a new network, a new blockchain network, it's more efficient if you have your own currency. When, when the US broke away from Britain, won the war and broke away from Britain, the US started the dollar. It wouldn't have made sense for the US to keep using the pound because then they would have said, okay, we created this, this whole new system. We don't like you guys, but we're kind of going to keep on hanging on to your money. Like we're going to keep hanging on to your money and asking your permission to use it. You don't do that. When you create a new system, you create a new currency. That's just how it works because that's what makes it efficient. Let's go to those light bulb moments. You said the light bulb comes on and things start making sense. I want to talk about NFTs because people hear, you know, crypto punk and they see frog avatars on people's Twitter accounts. And for a lot of people, it just doesn't make sense. To me, that's fine. I, I'm, I'm not uh, in that space really, but here's one thing I've learned, if nothing else from this whole crypto experience and from some other life experiences, sometimes it's not what's happening today that's important. It looks like people are getting excited about digital frogs, okay? And maybe some people are because they love pixelated art frogs. I don't know. Maybe some people, but I think what really gets people excited, especially early adopters, is the community and being in the space and realizing that these things that maybe may seem like trivial and silly um, are are going to make a difference down the road, and that's how I see the NFT space. And 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 yeah. So let's just touch on that. Can, can what's your thoughts on NFTs right now? Uh, NFTs right now. Look, you're you're right, and I and I talked to a lot of people about this. I actually spoke at the NFT NYC conference uh, last month in in New York, and I talked about you know, investing in them and where they sit in your portfolio and knowing full well that a lot of NFTs are digital art. And that's what we see it. But what we're doing right now and all the money going into them is building the infrastructure behind it. Because an NFT is a non-fungible token, is a token that might represent one asset. And think about in your life how important that is. An NFT can represent your house or your car. Okay, so yep. imagine the infrastructure that says, if you sell me your house, we can exchange your token for my cryptocurrency and the entire, we, we can eliminate title, right? Like we can eliminate that whole issue. Um, that, that makes a whole lot of sense to people. The, the idea of collectibles kind of makes sense. Like I grew up collecting baseball cards. So now there's, you know, I collected NBA top shots now. It's yep. the same thing. It's just digital. So what NFTs are doing now in, in terms of the, you know, the crypto punks and the, and the bored apes and the toads and all that, yes, it's getting people excited about digital art. And I, you know, like I, I have some myself and I played around with it and some people have obviously made a tremendous amount of money. But what we're doing is we're building the infrastructure that says, this is how I'm going to custody. This is how I'm going to hold them. This is some sort of asset that I have that I'm holding where it's not at a bank and it's not a, at a traditional custodian. It's not sitting on my wall like this piece of art back here. It is something that I'm holding in a digital wallet. And it's essentially a representation of that piece of art. So people are learning how to 
own assets or representation of assets. And the next steps it's going is so many places. We worked with a, a group in Dubai to build a, NFTs for luxury goods like Rolexes and, and luxury purses. There's a company out of LA called 4K that's building that exact thing. It's, it's NFTs that represent luxury goods. So as a financial advisor, your clients might want to invest in a Rolex, but not to wear it because they think the value is going to go up of it. And they right. say, look, I don't want to, I, I don't want the Rolex sitting in a vault, like it, at my house. I don't want to have to deal with custodying it. Like I don't have to deal with holding it. I can hold on to the asset that's custodied elsewhere. And I know I own it because I have this NFT, right? That's where we're going. NFTs, the uh, company named Royal just raised $55 million to do NFTs of songs, of music. So musicians can sell royalties, can sell NFTs, which represent royalties of their music up front. So fan, they, they develop a fan base, fans wanna invest in it, the, the musician can get some money up front and those fans can participate. So when that song is played on Spotify or Pandora or on the radio or whatever, since it's my favorite band, I get to participate in that. That's really cool, but it goes farther, James, because you're a financial advisor. Imagine what's going to happen when your clients can invest in part of a basketball team or part of the royalties from, from some musician that they like, from some band they like, or, or their house is denoted on chain or something, or they can right. invest in a vacation home that way. That is, is the direction we're going with NFTs. Right now it's digital art because that's the easiest thing to do. It's the easiest thing to create a piece of digital art and say this is one of one or one of 10,000 or whatever it is and rate the rarity. And it's getting people used to the idea of limited supply, of understanding how many there are of something and knowing that we can go back to a blockchain to verify that I'm the only one who owns this particular one. That's what we're getting people used to. And the infrastructure for that is being built right now. The investment opportunity for most people will come later. That was very well said, Adam. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And you're, you're seeing things like, I think Kings of Leon did an NFT album. I mean, that's yeah. kind of how, you know, it, so there, there, there are a million things that could happen. I, I honestly, like I think about it and I, I get so, so many ideas going and, and what could happen and what might happen that, that it like blows my mind, but it's really a way of rethinking ownership and, and proof of ownership. And it's, I think it's going to be very impactful. Right. Um, I just it, haven't quite worked out how. Well, here's the thing to remember, and, and a lot of people say Web3 is all about ownership and stuff. What it's really about is control. It's about mm -hmm. the fact that I'm going to have more control over my assets, my income, my data, everything else that I haven't had for quite some time. I've given up custody to banks. I've given up control of my, of my medical records to hospitals and doctors. I've given up control of my data to Facebook and Google. And what this is doing is giving back that level of control. And when I have control, I can profit from that. When I have control of my assets, of my income and everything, I, I can profit from that more. And I know it's a hard concept to kind of get across right now until people start to learn it and until they start to use it. And that's why we try to get financial advisors like you to come in and learn it now so that it becomes more, so that it becomes simpler. So you can feel comfortable playing around with NFTs a little bit or playing around with some sort of DeFi protocols and lending protocols because you already know the basics of it. And then you get to play around with it. And then you go, okay, let me go look and see what happened. Let me go see what I just did. Hopefully you didn't lose money, but let me go see what I just did. I've lost a lot of money in, in the, I, I say in the vein of, uh, so I could teach you all what not to do. <laughs> I, I've gone ahead and lost a whole lot of money so I could teach everybody else. Here's what you don't do when you're either investing in or advising on crypto.
So yeah, it's like, it's <laughs> thanks Adam. And it's like anything else. I mean, I, I've talked numerous times on this podcast about my entry to stocks and it wasn't pretty. It, it, it was not doing the right things. It was an, a teenager investing in penny stocks, trying to outsmart something that I didn't understand. But guess what? I learned a lot from it and it's, it's served me very well since then. And, and so we appreciate your sacrifice. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I, I tried, but I, look, I, I love talking about this stuff as you can tell. And, and as you've seen, and, um, a, a big part of when we talk to advisors, it's, it's understanding, look, you're not going to put your clients in all this stuff right now. It's going to be a very small percentage. And I know full well that even if you allocate 5% of your client assets to it, it's there's another 95% you have to deal with. Sure. Um, which is what you're dealing with more more often than not. But learning it not only about helping them invest in things like Bitcoin and ETH through some custodial platform, but then understanding how custody works and understanding how DeFi and smart contracts and eventually liquidity pools and all that work is is going to help you eventually in in helping your clients understand how to how to manage their financial life. And that's what we feel. And if you go through this and you say, none of this is actually going to work, I'm just going to put my clients in Bitcoin, then that's fine. We, we understand that too. At least you're doing it from a, a, a perspective of education and knowledge. And you're saying, I've looked at all this and I've decided that here's what I'm comfortable doing you know, for my clients. But we also feel that there's this ecosystem being built and it's important for advisors to understand it enough that they can intelligently have conversations with their clients about it because your clients are, are going to ask you about it and, and they just are. And you are going to learn so much more about the financial system by having to learn all this, by having to learn crypto and DeFi and digital assets and liquidity pools and, and liquidity mining and all the other things that we decentralize exchanges and everything else that we talk about. And that is when generally for our, for our advisors to go through this, when we talk about DeFi is when the light bulb goes off. When we start going, you can do that. Here, here's how an exchange works. Here's how a decentralized exchange works. And then it clicks and they go, oh, I know there's so much inefficiency in the market. I don't know why we still have T plus two or T plus three settlement. That's ridiculous. That's what calls the whole GameStop fiasco. We should have something better. And my answer is we do have something better already. It's here. And, and now you're getting to learn about it. I love it. There's so many, so many different ways we could go, and and, and we, we we flat out don't have enough time. I don't want to take up your your entire day drinking whiskey and talking crypto. Although that's a pretty good day, if you ask me. That's that's um, uh, quite. I mean, if I had to mark a day, like if I had to knock off an entire day, I, it would be like crypto and whiskey. That's a that's a pretty good day. It is a good day, but I know you probably don't have time for it. But I do want to go back before we get into the my kind of typical closing questions. I do want to go back to Web three a phrase that's really trendy right now it's popping up more and more and it's it all of these technologies and things are interwoven and they're all kind of growing at the same time but just to provide a, a little bit of i guess uh, background on that here's my definition you know so web 1.0 web 1 was this version of the internet that we saw you know in the early 2000s mostly where you go to a website and you can read some information so it was very static someone set it up, you could visit the site and not interact other than read. You were an observer. Web 2.0 is largely where we're at today. It's very concentrated as far as who owns the power to the content and the commerce as far as companies. So your Googles and Amazons and uh, Microsofts and uh, you know, so very, very few companies that, that really dominate the space. But there's in Facebook, there's interaction. So you and I are 
you're creating content, I'm commenting on it, we're talking back and forth, nothing static, things are always changing. That's kind of where we're at today. Web3 is the decentralized piece. So that, in my my view, is where, sorry, Facebook, and, and sorry, some of these companies that have made your, you know, make the bulk of your profits from other people's content, Web3 they're going to make the money on their on their content and and the way this wraps into our discussion is the blockchain and and that's kind of the key cog in combining all of these different things whether it's crypto whether it's nfts whether it's web3 whether it's the metaverse blockchain is kind of not the blockchain but blockchains is kind of the 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 key cog there the technology piece is that right. is that, that accurate? You think? Yes, be, it, and and it's accurate because look, Web One. Remember Web One Point I guess it was was also the beginning of Amazon and eBay. So it was also the beginning of some e-commerce, right? I I can buy something from you, and I will put in my credit card, and you will send it to me within like a week and a half. Right. Um. And then Web Two, like you said, is is the interaction. Right. Now we've started interacting. That gave us social media. That gave us the ability for others to create content, for others, to, for everybody to put information on the web, not just these big companies in the back that say we are going to push information on you. But now it's a give and take. And that's where we got us doing this like podcasts were not available. Uploading things to, to YouTube, of course, was not available in Web 1.0. Now it is in Web 2. And then the ability to monetize that, to be influencers or, or to have or, or to generate ad revenue. Not only YouTube can do it, but I can get ad revenue from YouTube who gets it from someone else because a lot of people like my video. So we have all these people creating. And then finally they said, look, why don't I own my own stuff? Like, why do I have to go through this intermediary? And in the meantime, remember... In the background, you have to have YouTube and Amazon and Google and everyone else. They have to have all their servers. They have to have all these things, that all, all this technology that they own. And that's where all of this on the Internet lives. It lives right. on Google and Amazon and, and Apple servers that they have all this control over. So instead of the government having control, these companies have control. Where we go to blockchain technology, it is a decentralized network. So it's millions of computers all over the world processing this. So it doesn't exist. It ex- it's, it's weird. It exists everywhere and nowhere. Right. <laughs> right so right. all these That's computers weird. are processing it. And what it means is no one owns it. No one, no one owns that data. It's just, it's just ones and zeros that are out there being run all the time by all these computers that are interconnected. What I have is the control. As I said earlier, Web 3.0 is about the control. I now have the control over the data that I put out there, the information that I put out there, and therefore I can decide what happens with it. And part of that can be I can decide to monetize it if I want to. I can decide who gets to have access. My health records can be out there on the on the on a blockchain or on the blockchain or, or somewhere out there where no one else can read them unless I give them the access and I say okay I've given you permission tell me you, what your key is I'm going to give your key permission to look at these health records of mine I'm going to give these people permission to watch my videos and if they choose to do so they are going to have to send me some sort of cryptocurrency in order to watch my videos and no one can take them down because I'm not putting them on YouTube servers or Google servers or Amazon servers or LinkedIn servers or anything. I have control over that. So Web3 is about now I've learned that I can create content and I can make some money on it. But now I'm going to have the full control over how I do that, not 
give up some of that control to anyone who can decide all of a sudden their policies have changed and they're not paying me or they're going to take down everything I've done. That's a big part of Web3 is I now have the control over all that, whereas I didn't in the past. And that hasn't fully happened yet, but that's where we get things like the the music royalties, right? You You have a lot more control if you're the musician and I'm not subject to some producer or, or some um, music industry folks that, that that own the rights to my music. I own the rights. My fans own the rights to my music. I can now go do what I want with it. I can find different right. ways to distribute it now because there's not someone I have to ask permission of. Damn, this is the second episode in a row where I've had to say, you are much better at explaining shit than I am. So, <laughs> so thanks for that. Uh, yeah, I've, I've done it a few more times. I apologize. No, I love it. I think that was that was fantastic and and really provides hopefully a glimpse of not necessarily what things are today, but what maybe can transpire and 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 what is out there and and, and kind of building and where it where it may go. And 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 frankly, there are gonna be some surprises to the upside and and some utility cases that no one imagined that are gonna be yeah. really amazing and, and impactful. And that gets no, me because I'm an I'm an optimist. Yeah. And, and the really cool thing I'll talk about with that, James, and I know we're, we've you know gone pretty far, but uh, I get pretty excited talking about this and you give me a little bit of whiskey and I'll talk all day about it. Beautiful. But um, the look, when we go way back, like I, I was in college in the mid 90s, so, like, so I'm, I'm older than probably most people in crypto. And I saw the beginnings of Amazon and eBay and all that. And I remember a time when it was crazy talk to think you were going to put in your credit card number to this weird web thing and expect a book in a week and a half. Any book you wanted in a week and a half, that was absolutely nuts and no person in their right mind would do it, but a few people did it. And all of a sudden, from that, we progressed to, as, as I say proverbially, like I can literally pull up my phone, summon a car to come pick me up literally from where I'm standing. That car, that driver will take me wherever I go. We don't have to say a word to each other. They'll take me where I want. I can get out of the car and not take my wallet out. And that person will get paid with a tip later if I want to. And with, with a, you know, a survey, how did I do all of those things? And that came because someone tried to decided to sell books on the internet. We had no idea it was going to get to self-driving cars and, and Uber and all the other things. And you and I, like we've been talking like this over video for the last two years, nonstop. And none of us even batted an eye about it. And 20 years ago, this was like sci-fi. Right. This was a, this Absolutely. was a sci-fi movie, and we've been doing this for the last two years nonstop, and none of us batted an eye about doing it, and we're so used to it now. And all that happened because the internet started because someone decided to take it beyond email 25, 30 years ago. So I have no idea where this is going to go. It's going to be really fun because really smart people are working on the code and trying to figure out what they can do. And my feeling is, I'm going to go the direction of the really smart people. And, and go, look, with you, you guys, like, I'm going to follow what you guys do. It's not always going to be right. It's going to be dangerous sometimes. Investors, of course, have to watch what they do with their money and be really careful. But there's going to be some really cool shit happening because they're, yeah. like, I've met some of these people. And the, the things they say are so far over my head. But I can tell that they're really smart. And some of the things that they're doing are ridiculous. And then when they package it all together and I go play around with it, I go, man, I wish I'd have thought of that. That's brilliant. You know, it like it, it just makes so much sense. So it's really exciting what's going to happen. So think about where you were 25 years ago, maybe buying a book online and where you are today with your smartphone and, and everything else you do. 
Think about where we'll be 25 years ago if you just go, man, I can I can send James some USDC right now and it'll take 15 seconds. It'll it'll be really quick. For like sure. That, and that evolutionarily, we are, we are not designed to think exponentially. We think linearly. We take a trend and we extrapolate it. And that's why we have a hard time understanding how quickly things can change. So um, I'm with you. I get excited about it. I'm still feeling my way and, and, and trying to learn. And I want to obviously use caution, especially when it comes to my client's money. It's one thing if I lose my own money. It's a totally different right. thing if I, if I lose somebody else's money, especially if it was uh, due to negligence or, or, or not taking the opportunity to educate myself or whatever. So I want to go ahead and transition now to a couple closing questions okay. and, and, and get your thoughts on, on those. So the first one is, what does wealth mean to you, Adam? What does wealth mean to me? Ooh, that's I know that's a big uh, shift. We were just on a crypto and, and a technology craze. So I'm kind of yeah, bringing it back so here. Wealth means that I don't have to worry about a whole lot. Like I can kind of do what I want. And, and that doesn't mean I can do what I want. Like I'm going to go buy an airplane and take a vacation and all that. It means I can decide I'm going to bump out of here at any point during the day and go hang out with my family. I can decide we're going to go take a vacation if we want to and not be like, man, how much does it cost? We got to find the cheapest flight and all that. Like to me, that's wealth. And that doesn't mean I have to have a tremendous amount of it. It means I want to do some of the things that I and my family want to do without having to think too terribly much about it. That is what having wealth means, I guess. That is what having wealth means to me is we don't have to think too much from a financial perspective. That doesn't mean I'm just going to throw money around. I'm not making it rain or anything. It's, <laughs> hey, look, we, we should go on a ski trip this winter. We haven't been on a ski trip in a couple of years. Let's go do that. And let's go to a nice place and make sure we're going to get ski lessons and do it all upright. Not just because we want to spend money, but because that's the experience we want. I like experiences. Wealth to me means I get to have those experiences that I, that I want. It also means that I get to have an impact right? Like my goal is to have an impact on the world. My goal should be, I want to leave the world better than I found it. And, and that's, you know, that could be all, you know, people say that, I don't know if they actually mean it. I'm not quite sure if I mean it quite honestly, but that's the way I feel. Like I want to have a positive impact. And that to me is wealth is being able to say, look, I, I have, I have enough that I can focus on the impact more than I need to focus on my personal profit. Right. right. That to me is wealthy is I need to focus on the impact. I need to focus on what it means to my kid and what it means to what what she's going to experience and the way she's going to leave the world. That to me is wealthy when I can focus on that more so than I can go, man, I just I just need to make money like whatever I need to do to make money. Yeah, I've talked recently about. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I've talked recently about this. We're living in an era of abundance. You and I right now are not thinking about whether or not we're going to be able to get enough food for our family to survive the next week. I mean, we know that's covered and, and you know, that's, that's a unique time in human history where we can focus and think about what do we want to do? And I know I feel very fortunate to be in that position. And, and I agree with you that that is a big portion of wealth to me. That's what I think of wealth is if, if we're watching TV and, or, or, or someone says they went to this amazing place and my wife and I say, that would, that sounds amazing. Let's go. We can do it. And, you know, maybe that's not the most, um, you know, um, I don't know, maybe that's surface level in some sense, but, but, but that's important to us is to, to have that freedom to be able to do those things. So, so right. yeah, I'm and with that's you on an, that. an experience and look, part of the, the experience can be, 
I'm going to take today off and just, and just, again, hang out with my family. We can go on a bike ride. It's a beautiful day. I just want to go do that. That's a big experience. And what it means is I'm not in my office trying to, trying to make money or pull a paycheck because I can go do, I can go take the afternoon off and feel comfortable doing that. That to me is some sort of wealth. And there are people who have a tremendous amount of wealth like money in, in, right. in accounts. But the feeling is if I walk away for one hour, I am significantly hurting my own wealth and my own value. And, and my wealth is tied to, is tied to the deals I make and just my personal and, and like, I don't, whatever everyone else thinks of their own wealth and, and how they do it is fine. I'm, I'm not here to tell anyone what their definition should be. You ask me what mine is and mine is I can get out of here and go walk my dogs with my daughter at whatever time I want, just because lovely. Yeah. Cause I want to, because I enjoy that. And after that, we can go, you know, we can go buy a Christmas tree because we want to go get a Christmas tree and make an experience out of like that. That's all experiences that I want to have. And wealth affords me the opportunity to have certain experiences, whether they cost a lot of money or not. That's what's important to me. That's what wealth is to me. Now, for other people, it's it's obviously very different. Wealth is a home or wealth is a car or or wealth is a, you know, a job or something like that, which is all important. It's a matter of, of what it gets you, because we know as financial advisors, there is so much focus on accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. How do you grow more money? But the the goal of it all is to be able to spend it, to really use it on the things you want to use it for. Money yeah. is only good if if you can use it for something and it doesn't help if you don't know how to spend it and you don't know what you want to spend it on, because then you're just in this anxiety riddled. I have to save as much as I can and grow it as much as I can. I don't feel comfortable spending it, but wealth is being able to actually spend your money on things you want to spend it on. Yeah. Di dying with the most money, uh, but being miserable your whole life is not particularly appealing to me. <laughs> No, it, it isn't. And, and we talk, you know, we talk so much in financial services about growing your wealth until you get to retirement and people get to the point where they get to retirement and they're afraid to spend it because they yeah. haven't talked about that the entire time. They haven't thought sure. about how they're going to spend it. And if you want me to take this back to DeFi, which I always like to do, do it. Um, we are going to have so many in DeFi, you're going to have so many more um, income generating opportunities, which is going to change the way you as an advisor and you as an investor think about money and think about income and everything. Because for years, we haven't had income generating opportunities in financial services because interest rates have been so low. Right Now you're going to find in DeFi their income or yield generating opportunities that your clients can earn 6, 8, 10, 12% pretty safely. And then you start going, okay, I can invest X amount of thousands of dollars in whatever protocol or whatever it is and earn 10%. And that 10% I earn every year that pays for my kid's private school or that pays for my car, or that pays for a vacation. And you're going to learn new ways to manage money because it's not all accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. It's I can park money over here, but the income generated pays for something in my life now. It's That's going to be a new way to think of, of income and wealth of, of how we live our financial lives that we as investors and we as in, uh, financial advisors haven't had to think about for a while because we haven't had that opportunity because interest rates have been near zero. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't had to deal with that as an advisor. I haven't had to live in that environment. So it's a totally different ballgame. Yep. But, but yeah, second question, and we're getting close to the end here. If you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice on money, business, um, what would it be? Well, the most obvious one is go back to 2008 and start mining Bitcoin. 
Right. That's like what Brian I mean, Giraldi said too. It, it, yeah, like you can't get a more obvious answer than that. And you had to assume <laughs> that that's what I was going to say. Right. No, right. I did. Go, I did. Go back to 2008, 2009 and mine Bitcoin. If I it, like, if we had to throw that out, what's my, what's the, the, I don't know, the piece of advice. Oh gosh, this is hard. It would, it would probably be more than anything. And this sounds so, oh gosh, I, I hate saying cliches like this, but it would be to um, be more confident and invest in myself more when I thought I had a good idea for a business or for, or for some product or service or something to go with it and, and say, look, I'm going to build that. I'm going to take the time and I'm going to sacrifice something on one end to build that because I think it's a good idea or I need to go that direction. And I can go all sorts of different ways with, with that, with, with regaling you with stories about things that I thought of and missed out on um, uh, along the, the lines of the Internet. I, you know, I had an idea for something called blogging before it was blogging. I didn't call it blogging, but I was like, man, I think people want to share their thoughts on this internet thing. I should have a website where people can share their thoughts. I want to share mine and I never did anything about it. And years later, I'm like, man, that would have been profitable. That would have done really well. I should have done that. Photo share. Like years ago, I was like, man, my mother always freaks out about the fact that she could lose all her pictures in a fire. She always told me if there's a fire in the house, grab the photo albums first. And like nothing, she's like, just grab the photo albums and run out. And, and early on, I was like, man, it'd be really cool if there were a place where you could upload all your photos and it would be, they would be stored digitally forever. That would be really right. cool. Never did anything about it. That was like 2001. I had that. Right. Never right. did anything. Like it, it's follow some of those things and just have conviction in them, even when it's going to be a pain in the ass up front, even when you're going to question it all the time. I wish I had more conviction in my own ideas to stick with them long enough to get some money and build something around it and, and see what I could do with it. That would be the, the biggest thing other than mining Bitcoin starting <laughs> in 2009. I understand Adam, why you feel like that might've been like cliche or trite, but I really think that's valuable. And I think a lot of people need to, to have a little more faith in themselves. And that's one thing I find so beautiful about everything that's going on in this space is it, it really emphasizes the individual and what you can do without necessarily going through layers and layers of, of other people. So um, I think that's fantastic. Finally, I appreciate you and uh, I appreciated going through your class. I learned a ton. Um, I'm excited to just kind of keep immersing myself and continue to learn. I'm not in a huge hurry. So that that's the joy of it to me. I don't feel any pressure. I'm just learning and trying to figure out how I can help my clients benefit from this stuff. But if someone wants to learn more about what you do, um, about Interaxis, where can they go to find you or interact with you? Good question. So we have our, our website, interaxis.io, I-N-T-E-R-A-X-I-S.io is my uh, website. We have a YouTube channel. So if you search Interaxis on YouTube, uh, we have, I don't know, 160 videos or something like that. Um, they just explain crypto and DeFi, and we never try to get people to invest. We just want to explain it. Um, our, our course for financial advisors is at certifieddigital.org. And and it's a cohort-based course, so the next one won't start until probably mid-January is the next time we'll do that. Um, and the last pl the last website I would send people to is Planner DAO. So we we didn't talk about DAOs at all, but Planner P L A just like financial planner Planner DAO D A O dot com, and that is just a community of financial advisors. And we, you know, we, we have chats in there. It's free to join. If you're a financial advisor, you actually get tokens if you're a financial advisor. Um, everyone who goes to the CDAA, the Certified Digital Asset Advisor course, gets to be a member of Planner DAO. 
Um, and, and we are doing things like we're governing the CDAA course. So I highly recommend financial advisors go there. And on Twitter, I'm Interaxis8. So at Interaxis and the number eight. And I could tell you there's a great story behind the number eight, like it's lucky in Chinese or lucky in, in Hebrew or whatever. But in reality, one through seven were taken. So I chose eight. <laughs> I'm sure it is lucky in, in China or Indonesia it, or it, somewhere. It definitely, it, it definitely is. And I can go with that story if I want to, depending on who I'm talking to. But I can tell you the lazy man's answer is uh, I wanted to have at Interaxis and it was taken. I tried one and two and three and four and five, six, seven. They were all done. So I took eight. Who the hell are these other Interaxis folks out there? I, I have no idea. I don't know what they are. I don't know how I ended up with eight, but uh, I, I don't know. It feels pretty lucky. Uh, <laughs> and it's easy to say. It's it's easier than saying Interaxis 7. Interaxis 8 kind of rolls off the top. Yeah, it does kind of roll. I agree. I agree. Well, this has been been uh, lovely. I just actually poured myself another little sip here. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so I could finish out my day uh, on a positive note. But really appreciate your time. I enjoyed the conversation. It, it uh, gets me really revved up um, about the future. And uh, thank you so much for taking your time and, and joining me. Of course. I appreciate being on here, James. Happy to do it anytime. Thanks for taking the course and, and talking about it. And thanks for learning about it. Yeah, absolutely. I may have to uh, have you back. We didn't even, yeah, we didn't even touch on DAOs. So my gosh, and who knows what will happen in the next three months. So it'll be a great time in three months to, to reach back out and do another one and see what's happened in the last three months. Cheers, Adam. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening to my wide ranging chat with Adam Blumberg of Interaxis. As always, please share Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon with those who might find it interesting or informative. Spreading the word is the best way you can help grow the show. And don't forget to follow or subscribe so you're notified when new episodes drop. Until next time, cheers.